Hello and welcome. You're listening to Law and Legend with your hosts Sebastian O'Dell and Rick Scott. Law and Legend brings you myths, legends and fables from world folklore and mythology. We tell stories the way that they're meant to be told. We do it in the style of traditional storytelling enriched with traditional music and dramatic audio work. This series of Law and Legend is called The Gates of Dream. Exploring tales of encounters between the heroes and heroines of Greek myth, the gods and the spirits of the Greek underworld, and the lands of dream, death, and darkest fate. This episode of Lore and Legend comes to you thanks to the contributions of our Patreon subscribers, story folk Christy Carson, Paul Jackson, and Sean Powell. Thanks to all of you for your generosity and your enthusiasm for our stories. Please consider joining Christy, Paul and Sean in supporting the podcast by becoming a patron. For more details, you can visit our website and click on Support Us. In the second part of our second episode, on a distant, storm-swept island, a dream-haunted queen is defending her home from the ravages of pirates and thieves and working to save her son from an untimely death. From storyteller Rick Scott and featuring the music of Michael Levy, Sakilo, and Caleb Hennessy, this is the second part of The Dream of Penelope. The doors of Penelope's chamber were thrown open with great violence from the hall outside. It was Antinous. He burst into the chamber, and he dragged her handmaiden Melantho in by the arm. His eyes flashed as he beheld Penelope and Anthonomus together in the bedchamber. He growled and threw the young girl on the floor before him. The shroud is a trick, he said. She told Eurymachus your secret, Queen Whore of Ithaca. You will finish your woman's work now. Odysseus is dead, and it is time for you to choose which one of us will be your new king. He glowered, first at Anthonomus, and then at Penelope as he marched out. And he spat, make sure that it is a wise choice. And from that day forward, Penelope and her maidens wove on the loom, but they could not unweave the shroud at night. The crier Medon was set as guard over their work and stood always in the doorway. And the days passed and the threads tightened. The cloth was almost whole. In the day that he returned to Ithaca, Telemachus lent his spear by the pillar of the door and the maids of the house rushed to bring Penelope the news. Quickly, Wise Penelope, tall in her beauty as Artemis or pale gold Aphrodite, appeared from her high chamber and rushed down to embrace her son. She kissed his head and then she scolded him. My son, return to me. Telemachus, more sweet to me than sunlight. 
I thought I'd never see you again after you stole away after your father. But tell me now, where have you been? And what have you seen and heard out there in the wide world? Mother, he said quietly, my heart simply aches. For I was in the halls of Menelaus, the warlord's captain, and I heard the report that had come to him from the mouth of a god, no less, that Odysseus is held prisoner by the nymph Calypso in her cave, and there's no hope of him sailing home or crossing the broad back of the sea to gladden our halls again. But then he hugged her close, and he said in her ear, Mother, I have brought home with me a stranger, a traveller and a storyteller, whom we must care for, keep well and honour, go and burn offerings to Zeus, go and thank him for the day of our revenge. Penelope caught back the swift words that threatened to spill from her tongue. Then she gave orders for the care of her son and all his guests, and then softly she withdrew to dress in fresh linens and make her offerings to the gods. And then as her son had asked, she prayed to almighty Zeus to put his hand to their revenge. When the stranger arrived with her son, the other vagrants and misfits who sequestered in the shadows of the hall told the traveller that the lady of the house was in her chamber. He climbed the stairs to the upper rooms and looking in at the door saw that what they said was true. The lady was sitting by the fire weaving a shroud from silver threads. When she glanced up and she caught the man in his ragged cloaks gazing at her, she inclined her head. Traveller, she said, come here and sit by the fire with me. Tell me if you have heard news of my husband. He sat down beside her at the fire. By its warmth, he began to tell her stories. Stories about a man with a brow as dark as storm clouds and wit as bright as thunder. A man shipwrecked on islands, held prisoner by giants and goddesses, waylaid by sirens and skillers. A man who even now was returning to her, clothed in the finest robes and bearing the most precious treasures. But when he was finished, she smiled and she said, Twenty years have passed since my husband left to fight the greatest of all wars, promising to return to me. And the stories you tell I've heard before, and each one I've woven into this shroud. But there is no story of homecoming to complete the tapestry. Every night when the weaving is done, I lie down on my bed with tears in my eyes and my sleep is filled with ominous dreams. Only the other night I had one. Listen, and perhaps you can tell me what it means. In this dream, I had 20 dear geese, which came up from the pond to gobble up all of the wheat that is stored in my house. 
and my heart it warmed with joy as I watched those geese. But then, sweeping down from the mountain, came a great eagle, and with his crooked beak, he broke their necks, and he utterly killed every last one of them. And I wept, and I wailed over the bodies of my geese, and all the good ladies in my house, they joined me in weeping. But then the dream changes. The eagle circles back, lights upon the parapet of the house, and he speaks to me in the voice of a man. Be happy, lady, the eagle says. The geese are your tormentors, and I am your husband, Odysseus, and I vow that I will soon bring down cruel doom upon all their heads. When Penelope had finished, the traveller said, Surely the dream has interpreted itself. The eagle is your husband, as it says, and he is returning to avenge himself on the thieves and the pirates that infest your home. But at this, Penelope sadly smiled and shook her head. Stranger, dreams are obscure and troubling things, and their meanings are by no means clear. In the land of sleep there stand two gates. One is a gate of polished ivory, and the dreams that come through it are invidious and idle, speaking only dark deceits. The other is a gate of roughly sawn horn, and the dreams that fly from there are honest and speak true. They will always come to pass. But my dream, I think it came through the ivory gate. Even if Odysseus himself was to appear now before me in all of his glory, how would I know that it was him and not some god in disguise? Didn't Zeus appear to Alcmene in the guise of a husband and sleep with her for three nights to beget that hero, Heracles? And even if Odysseus were here before my very eyes, would he alone have the strength to prevail against all of the enemies that occupy this house? Would he have the nerve, the skill to kill every last one, ensure that none escaped his vengeance? And the traveller said, My lady, I swear it to be true. Odysseus himself is returning. And even tomorrow, if that be the appointed day, he would appear and fulfil your desire for revenge. But Penelope did not answer him. Instead, she said, They say when a woman stops weaving, there will be a wedding or there will be a funeral. Sometimes there are both. See, the last thread has been woven and the last stitch soon. Tomorrow, I shall set a test for my tormentors. Whichever one of those men can most easily string a bow and shoot an arrow straight and true through the heads of twelve axes, as my husband, I will have you know, once did. I will consent to marry them. With that man I will go and ensure my son and I still have a future and a legacy. After that, this house it will be for me only a memory of my former life, a pleasant and half-remembered dream. And rising, Penelope smiled once more at her guest, 
Traveller, I bid you good night. Be assured, I have instructed my servants to serve your every need. You may command them, as if you were a master of this house. The Traveller bowed his head. My gracious lady, he promised, I surely will. That night, as Penelope lay in her bed, she dreamed of her husband, and the traveller, lying on a bed of reeds in the halls, dreamed of his lady. And when the sun rose, Penelope roused the servants and instructed them to open the great vault where her husband's arms were laid. Then she carried her husband's horned bow and a chest of twelve silver axes through the long corridors into the hall of that great house where the islanders and the pirates once again demanded to be wined and feasted. They watched curiously and laughed and murmured amongst themselves as the servants stood the twelve axes in a straight line down the centre of the hall. And Penelope sat down the war bow and the chest on the floor, and she declared, Whoever can string my husband's bow and shoot an arrow through the eye of these twelve axes, with him I will go and forget this house forever. The traveller was there, and he watched as man after man tried to string that bow, but it was unyielding in their hands. They tried to soften the wood by rubbing it with wax, by warming it over the fire. Yet when he made to draw, each one of them failed. And disgusted with themselves, they began to laugh and to mock. They laughed most of all when the traveller stepped forward, clothed in the threadbare cloaks of a wandering beggar. And he asked to try his hand. <laughs> Their mockery it knew no bounds. And this is what Penelope saw as she watched from the parapet above the hall. The beggar, the stranger, stripping back his rags with one swift motion, revealing muscular arms and a naked fly slashed by a single livid scar. And in a single swift motion, the bow was strung, an arrow was notched and released, and it flew swift and sure through the twelve axe heads. The jaws of the men hung slack. But that was just the first arrow. Another flew, and another, and another. But these arrows did not fly through the axe heads, they flew out in a wide arc to pierce into the throats, the hearts, and the eyes of her tormentors. Their slayer was bellowing, and suddenly Telemachus, her son, stood at his shoulder with his shield and spear in hand. In a flash, the thunder of almighty Zeus rolled and the bright mantle of the gods fell on They were changed from men to heroes grown in girth and height and form so that every movement flashed like rippling fire. All at once, there was Athena, standing astride the platform with them. With a single sweep of a dauntless arm, the helmed goddess unfurled the great pleated cloak that gathered at her shoulder, 
dropping it over them like the sheltering wing of a great owl. For this was the Aegis, the cloak of mighty Zeus which warded away all harm, and from over this shield the transformed heroes struck with their hungry spears and arrows, and every pirate was cut down, too adult to wield their own weapons. For Penelope, with the cunning of Athena, that morning had seen their wine laced with poppy and lotus juice. Penelope came down the stairs, crossed the killing floor, walked between the bodies of men as they gurgled and choked in the fast-running streams of blood. As they fell, pierced by arrows, and the wine-beakers fell from their hands, and the red wine ran together with their blood. Around her the sounds of her tormentors as they died were like the gabbling cries of geese. Somebody grabbed at the hem of a bright keton. She looked down, straight into the eyes of Amphinomus. Blood poured from the wound where her son had punctured him with a strong spear thrust. He tried to speak to her, but it was just a gurgle from spear-torn lungs. Penelope reached down, and with her arms she encircled his neck, cupped his soft beard in her hand. With the other, she took hold of the spear shaft that had pierced his side, and she pressed. The queen looked then to the hero. Like a lion he appeared, splashed with gore and blood, with bodies littering the floor beneath his unshod feet. His taut thigh bore a scar, where the tusk of a wild boar had split him from knee to groin in his youth. But even then, as this hero's eye turned to meet the eye of his wife, yet she paused, continued to study him, Sometimes when she looked, she found him, yes, clearly like her husband. But sometimes she only saw the blood and the rags and the ravished, battle-scarred body. She called him Strange Man. If a man you are, for I know how he, my husband, appeared when he boarded the ship for Troy and Indeed, you do look something like him. <laughs> At these words, Telemachus sprang up, his eyes were burning. Mother, he cried, horrified, do you have a heart of flint? What other woman would be so cold? Don't you know him? My father, your husband. Here he is before you, after twenty years of war and wandering. Yet the stranger smiled, held up his hand, bidding Telemachus be silent. Penelope continued, Well, if you truly are my husband, then surely your bed will be made up for you. 
I will have the maidens drag it into the bedchamber, pile it high with white fleeces and wools. And Odysseus, he of the storm-dark brows and lightning glances, met the eyes of wise Penelope, and he stepped towards her, growling. Woman, he said, now I think you are trying to woo me. For tell me, who could have had the inhuman strength to be able to move our bed? The bed which I myself carved from the trunk of an olive tree. And then I built our bedchamber and the foundations of this whole palace around it. What other hand than mine could have sawn that trunk, strung the crimson bands of our very own marriage bed? That was my gift, my pledge, my sign to you, my love, my beloved Penelope. That night, the king and queen of Ithaca made love. And then afterwards, they lay in bed, regaling each other with stories. They could not sleep until one had heard all from the other. After that night, the stories of war-wily Odysseus and wise Penelope, the faithful queen of Ithaca, who had waited chastely for her husband for twenty long years, they agreed would start here, in the court of Ithaca. And so they washed it clean with blood. They killed all of her handmaidens in the courtyard. Odysseus lashed a rope between two trees and hung them. The tongues of snakes, he said, strangled in the pit. And then he and the men of the palace descended to the harbour, where the father of Antinous tried to raise the island in revolt against their returning king. Odysseus did not let many of them survive. But though her husband slept that night, Penelope did not. Beside her, Odysseus slept under the low-hanging boughs of the olive tree. Then Penelope felt the wind break, heralding his arrival. Hermes. He planted his sleep-giving staff in the doorway, and he came within. In his arms, he was carrying something. He uncovered one corner of the bundle to reveal a ball of soft, dough-like flesh, thick curls of black and white hair, and the barnacles of two horns peeking from the crown of the head. To the gods, Penelope gave a wondering look, as if to question, who is this child? And Hermes grinned, split his face, broad as the wide bow of a warship. He is yours, Penelope, he said. His name is Pan. And Penelope looked down at the swaddled child and the nascent horns on his brow. Pan. The word meant all. Radiant Hermes turned away 
With the goatling god in the crook of one arm, he took his golden staff with the other. He looked back towards Penelope, and at Odysseus who slept beside her. You are lucky, Penelope, he said. Not everyone's lover returns to them from across the wide, dark sea. And then he walked to the balcony edge, and he rose, treading the currents of the air. As he ascended into the sky's heights, he gathered a flock of ghosts behind him, which rose from all directions around the house, the gates, the fields and the shores that bounded Ithaca. And the swift-winged god led the ghostly spirits of the slain pirates and the handmaidens and all their closest kin across the sky. They followed him, gibbering in the voices of the dead, a sound like a flock of geese in flight. Across the sea they flew, past the streams of Okeanos, over the horizon's bridge and down, beneath the great white rock, through the standing gates of the sun, to the land that lay beyond, the land where flowed the streams of leaf through the valley of dreams, and through the valley to the kingdom of Hades and the white-flowered fields of the dead. On the parapet of the house, Penelope stood watching him disappear, watching the sea, hearing the ceaseless crash of the wine-dark waves, waiting for whatever dreams rose next from the deep. The Dream of Penelope remixes and reinterprets events drawn from the Homeric epic of the Odyssey, the story of Odysseus's return home from the Trojan Wars, which is endlessly frustrated by the malice of the gods, and from less well-known stories which claim his wife Penelope was the mother of the fawn-like god Pan, the Greek divinity of shepherds and wild countryside. A traditional reading of Penelope makes her an often passive actor in Odysseus's story, However, other readings suggest that Penelope plays a more active and collaborative role in the return of her husband. Seeing through his disguise, she orchestrates the contest of the bow to give her husband the right opportunity to slay the suitors. Not only that, but the contest of the bow and her probing of his true identity established that Penelope is testing the worthiness of Odysseus to return to his place as king of Ithaca. In these readings, Penelope's repeated refusals to believe that her husband has returned are all part of the theatre of disguise, deception and unmasking. In employing the handmaidens as spies, 
courting the attentions of Amphinomus, and demanding the death of all of the suitors, she displays a degree of ruthlessness on par with her husband. Just as Athena makes Odysseus young and beautiful before battle to glorify him, she gives Penelope youth and beauty as tools to manipulate the suitors and increase their hubris. In the end, Penelope and Odysseus are shown as partners in the making of their myth. If Odysseus is a pirate king, as brutal a man as the ingenious one he is often remembered as, then here Penelope is his pirate queen, unsentimental about and complicit in the violent restoration of their power, including the killing of her handmaidens who might contradict her legend as the woman who waited. You can find a full list of links and sources for our research for this episode on the Lore and Legend website. For more about Penelope and her role in the Odyssey, we recommend listening to Penelope, Weaver of Fate, an episode on the Ancient Greece Declassified podcast, featuring an interview with Professor Olga Levenuk, which was influential in crafting this episode. Now, we've woven lots of different stories about dreams into our episode, and some of them aren't from the Odyssey. We've brought them out from other historical and mythical sources. So the story of the mother of dreams is a myth that's retold from the playwright Euripides. It's part of the myth of Apollo, which tells how he usurped the power of prophecy from the phonic old gods, in this case, Mother Earth. It's one of several of different stories about the birth of dreams, which say that they were born from Mother Night or from Mother Earth, or that they were created by Zeus. Here, the myth about false dreams and their origins is symbolically linked to Penelope's state of mind, as she contemplates the many different possible visions of a future that she has to contend with. And her statement that a woman may only trust the dreams she has of her husband the night before her wedding is a reference to a motif, a traditional genre in which brides would perform songs in which they claimed to have seen a dream of their husband the night before the wedding. This tradition existed apparently in several ancient cultures, but there are also lots of echoes of it in later European folklore. Dawn dreams about lovers was a motif in the troubadour literature of Europe and in later English folklore. And there are also many recorded charms and spells which on certain auspicious days an unmarried girl could use to summon a dream of the man whom she was going to marry. There's also a thing about the time of the dream in the early hours of the morning which may have been deemed important because of the belief that dreams in the early hours of the morning were more likely to come true. This is a claim that's found in the writings of Aristotle and in the Bible, and for that reason it was often repeated throughout many historical sources which referenced them. The story of Hermes visiting Penelope in her dreams under the guise of a ram, and then in the shape of Odysseus and all of the suitors, is our creative reinvention of the stories that Hermes slept with Penelope in the shape of a ram, or that she actually slept with all of the suitors on Ithaca. And the confrontation between Penelope, Eurydamas, and Anthonumus in the hall about suing the suitor for sleeping with her in his dreams, that's based on a bawdy tale which I picked up from a 16th century medical text about lovesickness called the Erotomania. 
in that version of the story, it is explicitly a man who wants to sleep with a woman who's agreed to do so if he will pay her for sex. But he then has a dream which completely satisfies him, so she tries to sue him and take him to court. There are less salacious versions of this story, and one of the most common versions is the stolen sense. This version doesn't involve sex or sexual dreams, but instead it tells the tale of how a beggar walking through the market is hungry, and he holds a piece of dried bread over a pot of hot stew in the hopes that it will soak up some of the flavourful steam. The cook catches him and insists that he must pay for the savour that he's stolen from the stew, the case is brought before a judge, and the judge decides that if the beggar has stolen only the smoke from the stew, then the cook is only owed the sound of money jiggling in a purse. So there you go, there's a much more safe-for-work version, if you want to tell that. But even without all of these little additions that we've worked in, the story of the Odyssey itself is soaked in dreams, and the language of dreams. Telemachus and Penelope are both visited by dreams of or sent by Athena. And Telemachus leaves Ithaca due in part to what one translation calls a new dream of his father that the gods have given him. But by far the most famous dream episode in the Odyssey is Penelope's conversation with her disguised husband, in which she describes the dream of the twenty geese killed by the eagle, an eagle which then announces itself to be Odysseus. In the past, many have taken the blows of this episode at face value. Odysseus is in disguise. Penelope doesn't recognise him. She has had a dream which seems to interpret itself for her, and she tells it to the stranger, but says that she doesn't believe in it. And then she goes on to set a test for the suitors, a test which Odysseus is fated to win. But many modern interpreters argued that there's a lot more going on here, that Penelope may actually recognise Odysseus or suspect that the stranger is her husband returned. And so her story about the dream is actually in equal parts test and coded communication. In the dream, there are 20 geese killed by the eagle, and the suggestion seems to be that those geese are the suitors. Yet, Scholars Louise Pratt and Kelly Bulkley point out that 20 geese matches up much better with the 20 years that Odysseus has been absent from Ithaca and from Penelope, rather than the 108 suitors who are said to be in the palace. And Bulkley suggests that Penelope's strange emotional reaction to the death of the geese, as well as the stores of the grain that they eat up, might instead symbolise something else. It might be a reproach towards her husband for the 20 years of loss and waste that have been experienced in his absence, the decline and eventual eating up of his kingdom. Olga Levenuk argues that in telling the story about the eagle's return, it is Penelope herself and not Odysseus who is in control of and dictating the meaning of the dream. In effect, she's secretly asking Odysseus if it is him who has returned, and if he is now going to kill the suitors, thereby redeeming those lost 20 years. Not only is she communicating her recognition of her husband, but she's also communicating her expectations, including her expectation that he will utterly kill all of the suitors. 
The idea that Penelope's dream is a coded communication matches up with the fact that Odysseus himself uses stories about dreams elsewhere in the Odyssey and in other mythical sources to manipulate people and situations around him and to get what he wants. This episode would make that a common tactic to both husband and wife, a shared means of strategy and communication. Penelope's dream is also the source for one of the key pieces of lore about dreams in the Greek mythos, the gates of horn and ivory. The idea that dreams could be either true or false, and that they came through either a horn or ivory gate, is actually a piece of punning and wordplay in the original Greek, where the words for fulfil and horn and deceit and ivory apparently looked and sounded similar. In English, the words honest and horn and invidious and ivory were about as close as I could get to replicating something like that. The motif of the gates emphasises the central truth about dreams in Greek myth and culture, that they're inherently ambivalent and untrustworthy. Unlike oracles, which were always assumed to be true, even if they could be incredibly deceptive based on your perspective and the assumptions that people made when they were interpreting them, dreams predicting the future could often be completely false. And we see this in the very beginning of Greek literature in the Iliad, when Zeus sends a spirit called Deceitful Dream, which lies to Agamemnon by promising him victory if he immediately attacks Troy. Yet the nature of dreams is always double, because Athena's dreams to Telemachus and Penelope are both comforting and true. In light of this fact, Penelope's confusion, her doubts, and her need to strategically verify the identity of her husband are all very understandable. Finally, at the end of the Odyssey, the god Hermes appears and is shown leading the ghosts of the slain suitors to the edge of the world, where they pass under a great white rock through the gates of the sun and through the land of dreams before reaching their final place in Hades. These are all landmarks in the mythical geography of the Greek underworld, a topic which we'll have an opportunity to explore in greater depths in future episodes. You've been listening to Lore and Legend, The Gates of Dream, Episode 2, Part 2, The Dream of Penelope. Next week, when a king undertakes a dangerous voyage to save his kingdom from a curse, his wife, the queen, receives a visit from Morpheus, the mysterious prince of dreams. Our story today was interpreted and performed by Rick Scott. This episode featured music by Michael Levy, Sakilo, and Caleb Hennessy. Check the episode notes to find links to where you can hear their music and support their creativity. Additional sounds and music were sourced from the community at freesound.org. Full audio credits are available on the website at www.lawandlegend.co.uk. For news about upcoming episodes and more info about our stories and their sources in world folklore, find us at www.lawandlegend.co.uk. Or you can follow us on Facebook and Twitter at Of Law and Legend. 
You know, if you like what you hear and you want us to keep on producing, then please consider making either a one-time donation through Ko-Fi or supporting the podcast regularly through our creators page on Patreon. If you go to our website and click support us, you can find out everything that you need to about that. That's all for now and see you again soon, story folk.